Welcome to The State of the Markets, episode 53. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Dominic Frisby. He's a stand-up comedian and voiceover artist and self-confessed financial bot. He's also a successful performer at Scotland's Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the world's largest art festival. He writes for Money Week magazine and is the author of Life After the State and Bitcoin, The Future of Money. He hosted The Money Pit with Jason Manford and has just released a Brexit protest song, 17 million F-offs. Welcome to the show, Dominic. <laughs> Thank you very much. So have you got a clean version of the song as well for us? Well, I need to do one, really, with, with the words bleeped out. But um, given that the words appear fairly frequently in the song, um, I don't qu- quite know technically how I'm going to do that. But, yeah, I do need to do one. There's another guy who did a, a song that involved a lot of swearing. And, and in order to do a version, you know, that, that could play out on normal radio, he just, every time there was a swear word, he just replaced it with a farmyard sound. Oh, wow. So, birds, you know, raspberries and... Yeah, exactly. You can hear by the rhymes when the swear word is coming and it sort of got increasingly funny as you weren't quite sure, you know, which farmyard animal was going to be <laughs> brilliant doing the thing. So maybe Actually, I should do that. To be, to be fair, though, on your on your own version, I was expecting a rhyme when you, when you came out with stunts and, and I never actually heard that rhyme appear. Yeah, well, that was a teaser, really, wasn't it? I suppose it was. I only actually put the stunts in rhyme because it rhymed with the previous two lines, which oh, were okay. campaigning had gone on for, for many a month with debate and discussion on many a front. Oh, okay. And so that was only where I put it in. But I'm I'm well aware of the rhyming potential of the word stunt. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we would have put a little snippet of the song, but I've got a feeling that iTunes would have probably blocked it and said something about us, you know, infringing some sort of copyright. But we will obviously put uh, it. I didn't. Well, you can have I um you can have my permission now, and un- unfortunately, the way with automated things, I mean, it is released on iTunes. Yeah, that's um, probably why. So, though. But the the problem is, even if I verbally give you my permission now, because the world is now ru- ruled by computer code and bots, I don't think my permission would be enough because no. the automated system wouldn't know that I've given you my permission. Absolutely. Um, and and it would just, you know, who knows what it would do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think what we'll do, well, I could try it, but I think it could cause all sorts of problems. So what I'll do is we'll, we will definitely put a link to it. It's a fantastic song. It's brilliantly written, really funny. And the video's just fantastic. So, you know, you've got to watch it. Um, what, what, whatever, whatever side of the fence you're on, it's just brilliant. So I, I just Well, I, really- it was designed to be performed in comedy clubs where the audience is slightly more geared to remain than than leave. Oh, wow. And, uh, How does that go so, down then? That's really ballsy to do well, that. Well, uh, you know, the sort of, like, the militant Remainers don't like it, but most people, you know, the, the moderates are all right with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you, you need something like this to just redress the balance, and comedy is the best way of doing it. So I think it's absolutely hilarious. Just talking about automated systems ruling our lives, I was in a bizarre uh, situation with another song that I wrote um, where I released the song through a, a, a website called TuneCore where independent people can release music. And then I put it up on my YouTube channel and I was in the, in the, I found myself in the bizarre situation of having a copyright strike against <laughs> myself by myself. 
<laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I did a quick check on the um, on the song uh, online, and I can see that somebody's reposted it already. So you may have to be sort of hunting other people down for reposting the song on YouTube, because of course they they scrape these things, and and that's the point of having these bots, isn't it? Otherwise, it's sort of endless work for individuals. But but anyway, that's yeah. I mean, you get you're. I'm slightly conflicted, and you do get slightly conflicted as a comedian because, on the one hand, like face some guy on Facebook released it on his Facebook channel, you know, and he uploaded it himself, having downloaded it from YouTube. And like, I put it up on Facebook and I had, you know, a hundred thousand hits or something when I last looked and, um, but he's put it up and he's had like 60,000. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sort of thinking, well, that's 60, that, that should be, they should be my hits, but ultimately, you know, it's only hits and I, but uh, you know, I don't get paid for the hits. I don't think, but I, I wasn't, I was torn because on the one hand, it's sort of, you know, it's my intellectual property and I don't want other people, you know, effectively nicking it. But at the same time, I was delighted that so many people were enjoying it. And but this guy actually thinks he's done me a favor. Mm, yeah. And so he's now asking me to donate to his. He runs a thing called Stop Labor or something. He's asking me to donate to his thing because of the favor he's done me. And really? I'm sort of going, well, mm. yeah, exactly. No, so no, there's no. a conflicting thing there. And you get this because, you know, you know, as a comedian or whatever, your 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 first priority is to entertain. But you at the same time, you want to protect your property. And if you start getting aggressive with other people for using your your property, it's kind of from the role of the comedian. Yeah. So you're well, conflicted. I see where you're coming from, Dominic. But, you know, the, the thing is that the way the algorithms work is the more popular something becomes, the more popular it becomes. So those those hits should really be on your track. And if he wanted to promote the song, he should have promoted a link to the song to you, so therefore the hits would go onto your, you know, your Facebook or your YouTube, wherever. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's anyway. that's that's where it is. But we are where we are. Yeah, but we'll do our best to to get more hits for it. That's for sure. You're very kind. Thank you. How many copies of Seventeen Million Coffs do you need to, to chart? Do you know? The answer to that question is: I think to have a number one hit in a normal week, if you had a hundred thousand people buy that, that would that would get you over the line yeah but i'm not sure if that's 100,000 in that given week or 100,000 cumulatively or you know i'm not quite sure how they measure it um but about 8,000 should get you into the top 40 and now i'm pretty sure that 8,000 people have bought it already and i looked in the charts last week and the charts come out on friday and i wasn't in it in the top 100 but i've um, I've managed because I'm looking I've made at a, official official singles chart top 100 and the yeah, that's yeah. from the 15th of March. Yeah, but listen, there's 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 all sorts of things that you know I'm just discovering. But so I didn't, unfortunately, when I put it on the distribution thing, TuneCore, I accidentally pasted because I had problem formatting the picture. I kept having to resubmit it, and I accidentally pasted my iTunes web page as my name. And so if you look at the song, rather than say 17 million offs by Dominic Frisbee, it says 17 million offs by some obscure website address. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been trying to, I think I've managed to sort that problem out. And then the next thing is, is I submitted it to the charts on like Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday last week. I didn't, I thought that was enough to put it on TuneCore, but I think you actually need to formally submit it to the charts as well. So I did that on Wednesday or Thursday last week. And I actually spoke to the guy on the phone. He was very nice. Um, 
so I think it has actually been submitted. But then I looked on there again and it seems to have gone. So I'm, I'm going to speak to him first thing on Monday and just check that it is submitted. But it might not might be that it was submitted, but it didn't get counted in Friday's count. So, so we might possibly see it next week then. Yeah, I hope so. But I'll know more on Monday when I speak. To I mean, the, the timing would be ideal because I know. Is, I know. Well, it gives you it gives you a week run then. Yeah, but but what I'm worried about is that loads of people have bought it with the initial excitement and that those purchases don't count towards anything. And also the other thing is, is I'm like, does it do, do the amount of plays on YouTube count and and you know how much people streaming it on Spotify? There's so many variables. They probably don't tell you just in case you start to game it. Well, that that that's the other thing is that I don't know if you remember when Thatcher died, they um they tried ding to dong, get, ding dong the witch yeah heard. exactly and so they've done something now to stop political campaigning. So I don't uh, know whether this falls into that yeah. category or not. You know, it sort of does and it doesn't. Mm. I mean, it's a legitimate original composition, you know, rather than a political. And, and it's and it's not party political either. No, it isn't party political. That's the point. But you know, they might not see it like that. So, you know, there's all this going on, but I mean, you know, Tim, if, if that song got to number one, like the, I'd, if you'd said to me at any point in my life that you would have a number one single, <laughs> I would just be don't. Yeah, of course I will. You know, it's, it's never even been a dream. And, and even two weeks ago, if somebody said to you in a month's time, you're gonna have a number one single, I would go, yeah, what, what, yeah, whatever. And, but suddenly now it does actually seem like a, it's still a remote possibility. It's in your grasp, though. It's, yeah, it's, it's and not, so not beyond I'm the like, realms of probability. Yeah, so, I mean, it would be wonderful if it happened. So the, the party at the end, I It'd recognize... Be, it, would be, it would be a blow for comedy, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 the party at the end, I recognise a guy called Alex Balfour, because I used to work with him. Uh, where, where was that? Where, where did that take place? Well, by chance, there was a... Was Alex Balfour, was he the, the dark-skinned guy? Uh, no, Alex. 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 Got a kind of spoony name, as in sort of silver spoon. Born, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Lovely guy. I worked with him at UBP, but he's he's from the Balfours, as in, as in the Balfour Declaration Balfours. Okay. Um, and he's just you know, a nice guy. He's a hedge fund guy, basically. But I just, oh, okay. I, I, I just recognised him and thought, that's that's Alex Balfour. What's he doing there? So I was wondering um, where you where you shot that. Well, so what happened is just by chance on the day we filmed it, there was a uh, some. I think it's called Leavers of Britain or something. It's like a sort of network where they have events for people who either wanted to vote leave or did vote leave. And now where they sort of meet up and they can talk freely about leave, you know, without being excommunicated, you know. Yeah. And so that's how it's thing. And it was one of those events. And they happened to be having the thing on the on the same day. And the cameraman knew it was going on. And he said, let, let, let's go down there and see if we can get some footage. So that's that's how that happened. Brilliant. Well, fig, fig, fingers crossed. So Dominic, you've you've had a I, I would say because we've known each other probably for you know, five ten years now, uh, one way or another. Primarily through I guess the Money Week connection. Uh, ten years, Tim. Ten, ten years. Uh, it's, it's flown by, and it's been an absolute pleasure. I have to say. Um, would Would you like just to sort of introduce your own background because you had a very unorthodox background in terms of the financial markets? I would suggest. Yeah, I've got an extremely uh, uh, unorthodox history to the point at which I think I'm I describe myself as the world's only financial writer and comedian. Um, apparently, there's a guy in Germany who claims to be. But but given that English is far <laughs> superior language, I, I'm claiming to be the only one. Well, you're but saying anyway, com you're saying comedy there, Dominic. So how can it be? 
comedy. <laughs> well, yeah. well, there's Henning Vane. Um, Henning Vane isn't too bad. Yeah, I'm afraid like German people are some of the funniest people I know, and, and so that's a stereotype that I I'm not happy to endorse. But it is a, it's a it's a it's a common one, and yeah, Henning is is superb. Um, the uh, so I've made a bit of money in the noughties in the 2000s and um, I wanted to invest it and I wasn't quite sure how and I sort of started talking to some fund managers and stuff and I just found it all a bit creepy the way they keep shaving off their percentages here and there and there were guys who were you know they only seemed focused on despite you could see they were just thinking about the commission and I just smelt dirty rats generally and I didn't sort of particularly agree with their world views and then I started reading stuff you know online more and more stuff online and I became this is in we're talking 2005 2006 here and became very convinced about the argument for gold and then the more you start reading about gold the more political uh, a, a story gold is. It's an extremely political metal because of the fact that it's it was once money and independent money as well. And there were all these really interesting people talking about gold. And I was like, I've got to meet these people. How do I meet these people? And if and, and you know, talk to them further to discuss how I should invest my money. And of course, thanks to the internet, you know, it was much more possible anyway for ordinary investors to to take charge of their own investments rather than hand them over to a fund manager. And so um, rather than, you know, meet these people and pay them 200 or 300 quid an hour or whatever their hourly rate was, it seemed a very expensive way of doing it. My, you know, I did a lot of voiceovers and I was reasonably competent, you know, behind a microphone. And so I thought I'll start a podcast in which I and this was before sort of podcasting had taken off. I'll start a podcast in which I interview people um, and discuss the markets and, you know, find out about my investments. and. It'll and never of course, take off. Never it'll take never off. take off. But all these people, of course, were all promoting their own brand, and they were more than happy to appear on my podcast and talk. And podcasting is bizarrely the best way of getting to know somebody quickly, because of the discipline of an interview is that you sort of it's like a distillation, and so you you speed through subjects and you speed through an acquaintance, and by the end of a one hour interview with somebody, particularly if you meet them in person. You're much closer than you would be if you'd just gone for a coffee with that person for an hour. And so this was something I discovered accidentally. And the podcast was very popular because I was asking questions from a sort of ordinary, know-nothing retail investor point of view. And one of the people I met on the po- I interviewed on the podcast was Merrin, Merrin Somerset Webb. She was the editor. She's now the chief executive editor or something of Money Week magazine. And she just, uh, we talked for an hour and she just went, oh, we need people like you to come and write for us. Do you want to come and write a column for us? And um, and I said, well, Marin, I, I really don't think I know what I'm talking about. And she said, that doesn't matter. It's fine. You do. You'll be absolutely fine. And um, And so I started writing a weekly column for Money Week as a result of that. And that's kind of how it happens. So podcasting really is how it happens. Are you actually doing a podcast right now? Because there's no. Stuff well, that... it's sort of gone on hold slightly. It's it's been and gone in many in, incarnations. That podcast and it's it now lives on as stuff that interests me. The problem, as I'm sure you guys are finding with podcasts, is it's very hard to make them pay. And so it's easy when you're not being paid to do something. It's easy to sort of let it fall a little by the way, wayside. So I basically do the podcasts. If I start putting up a lot of podcasts, subscribers can know will know that I haven't got a lot going on elsewhere in that particular moment. <laughs> but if I'm like, really busy with a book or something, uh, then the podcasts tend to, to um, 
go quiet for a month or two, which is what's happened at the moment. Well, nobody could accuse you of uh, sitting on your hands. I mean, you've got plenty going on at the moment, especially with the song. And uh, and you're currently writing another book, aren't you? Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shapes Our Past and Will Change Our Future. Uh, absolutely right. You've done your homework on me because that's the the updated title that, that that's so new. I'm not even using that <laughs> subtitle of, I say the past, present and future of taxation, but the editor insists that, that the title you just, the subtitle you just read out is better. You, heard it, here, you heard it here first. <laughs> but yeah, the, the book is called Daylight Robbery all about tax. It's really interesting. I mean, I'm just slightly, I used to be obsessed with money to the extent that I thought that everything that was wrong in the world um, was caused by our sort of corrupt system of money, fiat money. But now I've of the mind that actually it goes to, it's taxes that are the problem. Because you've done a show about tax, haven't you? I did. I did it in Edinburgh 2016. Let's talk about tax. And um, given that tax and sex sound quite similar, the, uh, the, the, the possibilities for, for puns around the word tax are, are fairly limitless. Another guy wrote a book called The Joy of Tax. The Joy of Tax. Clearly into S&M. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, he's a guy called Richard Murphy, who's sort of he's very left wing statist uh, economist. And, you know, I quite like his stuff. I mean, his output is incredible. If you sign up for his blog, he never stops producing material. But it's not a worldview that I entirely agree with. But we What's do that? agree on one fundamental thing, which is that it all comes down to tax. So you've, you've raised the issue of, of politics where rather than put words in your mouth, how would you describe your political political slash economic perspective? Well, I'm I'm easily swayed. So if I'm hanging out with sort of, you know, I go through a phase where I'm hanging around a lot of like normal people in the UK, I would describe myself as a minicist, which means I believe in minimum state or a sort of, you know, a Gladstonian classical liberal or even a libertarian. But if I start hanging out with loony Bitcoin guys and I, I, I say the word loony with a lot of fondness, then I quite quickly take on a, a worldview that minarchist is too much and I go full anarchist. But basically, the less government we have in our lives, the better. So on the current UK political spectrum, on economic issues, I tend to be, you know, quite right wing, you know, the old school Thatcherite minimum state uh, worldview, which is sort of in alignment with people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson to an extent and Steve Baker and people like that. But then on social issues, I tend to be like Jacob Rees-Mogg is very conservative on social issues. So on social issues, I tend to be more in alignment with the sort of, you know, liberal left, more basically lets people get on with it and doesn't interfere. So you've got that conflict, which you often have as a as a as an old school liberal. And so I tend to look at the world rather than on a spectrum of left and right. I look at it as authoritarian and, and libertarian. And I'm somewhere to the extreme libertarian uh, view of things. And would you say you had any sympathy with le the, the so-called Austrian or classical economic school? Um, uh, I have vast amounts of sympathy with both because they're right. And that's the natural law. Your, your book, Bitcoin, The Future of Money, it was just excellent. I have to say, from an investigative journalist point of view, I thought it was just absolutely brilliant and such a, a really great read. I mean, I independently recommended it on the podcast. It is a definitive book about Bitcoin. Do you still think Bitcoin itself is the future of money or do you think one of the other flavours is perhaps? Well, money is tech. It always has been. Um, the very first forms of money were bits of mud 
uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, settlers came down from the hills and they settled in the in the plains between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the reason they settled was because of the mud. They found that that the crop yields were the like of which they'd never known before. They found they could bake it and make tools from it, hammers and sickles and nails and axes and all these kind of things. And and that caused them to settle. They baked it with straw in the sun and it made bricks. And those bricks built the first houses, which built the first cities. And for the first time in human history, um, you know, people started producing more than they actually needed. And so we began to trade in exchange and mud. That mud was used for the first form of money. It was baked into tokens um, like you'd have a, a cone or a disc. And these represented things like a, a measure of barley or a, or a sheep. And the tokens would be baked inside clay balls. And then when when a debt was settled, the clay ball was smashed open and then they found that rather than bake these tokens inside clay balls, it was quicker to just inscribe the clay with pictures of the uh, item at stake instead. And so uh, the first system of handwriting developed. So there's this relationship between you know money and writing. And of course, the most common debt that was owed was was tax. Now, as money has evolved, and that now what you have there, those these baked, effectively they were security tokens, and these clay balls were like little records. They were like li- little mini blockchains, you know, ancient blockchains. And you found that over the years, there's this relationship when when technology was developed to cast coins, whereby and and stamp them, and you could certify thereby the amount of uh, metal. Uh, the the weight of metal in a particular coin and the purity of it. And so we started using coins as money, Um, you know, uh, gold and silver, and then eventually nickel and and copper. And then when we invented the printing press and the print, we think as the printing press invented in in, in Germany, but in fact, it was invented in China um, about 500 years earlier. Marco Polo describes um, going to China and marveling at the fact that they used paper instead of money. With the invention of paper, we started using paper instead of coins. And then with the emergence of digital technology um, in the 1980s, we started using digital money instead of paper and and, and digital money put paid to the check. And now just 3% of the money in the world exists as, as physical cash. And so there's always been technology has driven what we use as money. And the latest evolution is, of course, blockchain technology. And so I say, Technology is destiny and money is technology. It's inevitable that we will start using some kind of blockchain technology, cryptographic technology in money as the future, certainly for cash for the Internet and probably for other forms of money as well. The other problem that the world faces with blockchain, every uh, transaction that's ever taken place can be seen. And. Um, you know, I think we're, one of the themes I'm looking forward, looking to in the future is that, you know, of course, as we know, governments are spending way much more money than they actually take in in tax. And as we go forward um, and with the rise of the digital economy, the intangible economy, governments have found this incredibly hard to tax, particularly companies like Google and Facebook. You know, where is 
Google exactly? Where is the intellectual property? Where does the transaction take place? The internet, the borderless internet has proved extremely difficult to tax. Now, what we're going to see in the future is it's not just that the economy is going digital, workers are going digital. There are going to be more and more freelancers, more and more digital nomads, people moving from one country to the other. Income tax is going to get increasingly difficult to collect and particularly, and the same problem of, you know, where is Google based is going to apply to actual workers as well. Where exactly is this worker domiciled? So there's a re- and income tax is, of course, the major, the, the largest um, source of government revenue worldwide. It's roughly 50 percent of government revenue comes from income tax. So government revenue, while they're spending more than they earn on one side, on the other side, government revenue is actually jeopardized. So one of the themes I'm looking for going forward is a tax grab, more aggressive tax collection by those governments that are unable to rein in their spending. And blockchain, bizarrely, uh, even though digital technology is the enemy of, of, of governments in many ways, it's also the solution. And the more that governments put their currencies on blockchains, the more readable um, every transaction that's taken place will be. And so it will get harder to um, actually avoid taxes. And so tax collection will get more efficient. So I think it's inevitable that blockchain technology, one way or the other, is going to be adopted. Governments will embrace it because it will make their tax collection more efficient. And um, uh, the free market will embrace it because it will enable them well, for all sorts of reasons. Now, the big question is whether you know a blockchain is like, if you remember when the internet started off in, I don't know, 2000, round about then or just before, there were lots of intranets as well as the internet. There were lots of intranets yeah. and the intranet never really took off. Um, you know, some companies still use them internally, but intranets is a thing. Now you hear there's hundreds of different coins and lots of different companies, all, they've all got their little blockchain, but you know, the question is, which is these? They're each like little intranets, but which is going to be the blockchain, which is going to be the Internet of blockchains? And in all probability, it's going to be the Bitcoin blockchain because it has this colossal first mover advantage. And um, also it has w- what we call the network effect. So even though there might be better technologies, the the, the Bitcoin blockchain has has the network effect. And so it's likely that the Bitcoin, for that reason alone, you know, there are lots of coins. There are some coins that are more private than Bitcoin. There are some coins that are where the transactions are faster than Bitcoin. There are some coins that don't involve so much energy consumption. There are some coins that transactions are cheaper. You know, there are lots of advantages in using other blockchains, but Bitcoin has got this network effect and this first mover advantage. So, and by the way, I don't see governments embracing the Bitcoin blockchain they'll put their own currencies on blockchains but mm. nevertheless you know it's it's all very confusing but inevitably cryptography and blockchain will play a role in money in the future inevitable i think you're right i think that the the governments will adopt it and you'll have like the equivalent of a sterling bitcoin and a dollar bitcoin and and that's when i think people will fully embrace it and by that point i think they would have sorted out the problems with the technology, because to be fair, Bitcoin can't handle you know many transactions per second. I think it's something like seven, which is woefully slow. But they will have solved all these problems. In fact, there's a the, an article I shared last week about Japan with the 2020 Olympics coming up. They are getting themselves set up for using a cryptocurrency because they they quite. They quite like using cash. They don't use credit cards and and debit cards. They use cash for everything. So instead of going from credit cards and debit cards the way we're used to 
to a cryptocurrency, they're going to try and leapfrog straight to a cryptocurrency. So I think that's going to be an interesting um, model to watch to see whether it's something we then adopt in a couple of years. But I think you're absolutely right. The march of technology cannot be stopped. And one way or another, it will be, it, we'll have to embrace it. Um, but at, at the moment, I think, you, I mean, you were very far ahead of the curve in your writing about it and your your foresight about it. You were right there, literally standing in Smithfield's, was it Smithfield's Market, wasn't it? Just doing yeah. the, the first few transactions. I mean, that must have been, that must have just seemed like so long ago, but an, uh, an absolutely amazing thing. Did you, did you, am I remembering correctly? Did you do a transaction in a, in a coffee shop straight afterwards? Yeah. Um, God, it's so long ago that I can't even remember it, even if I've, I've written a book about it. Yeah, we 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 did. But the we, we did do transactions in a coffee shop on our phones. But um, and we did things like we'd go and have buy beers. There was a pub in New Cross that we went to and we uh, sorry, Deptford that we went to where we bought beers in Bitcoin. I still go past that pub now and it's a proper southeast London dump of a pub that you <laughs> you'd think. You know, when you're 17 years old, you'd be scared to go in there in case you got beaten up. But the um, but I do hope they made a fortune from the Bitcoins because they were one of the first pubs to, to accept it. I think one place where Bitcoin has made the community of Bitcoins like the hardcore maximalists maybe have got it slightly wrong. is like if you go to a conference, uh, you know, a real hardcore one in Prague or somewhere, they will only accept Bitcoins as payment. So when you go and get your lunch, you have to pay with your phone or Bitcoin or when you go and get your you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, your drinks at the end of the day, only Bitcoin is accepted. Now, I get why they're doing that, because they're trying to force the people to embrace it. But it's actually not money for the real world. I don't think we're ever going to be in a situation where, you know, I go to my corner shop and pay for my newspaper with Bitcoin, because that's not what it was designed for. It's, it's, des it's designed to be cash for the internet. And you know, the internet is borderless. And the one thing that doesn't have is a borderless money system, or it does now because we have Bitcoin. And it's designed to be a, a dissident in, in China wants to buy my 17 million F off song. And he can pay 70p in, in Bitcoins and get sent the song. And, the, and nobody will know necessarily, you know, it's a private transaction. He will have the song and nobody will necessarily know that he's bought the song. And, it, and it's a, a transaction for a small amount of money. You know, if, if you want to send 70p from China to me in, in England, that's an expensive transaction. Whereas with Bitcoin, you can just send 70p and it doesn't cost anything or it shouldn't cost anything. And the reality is it's a bit more complicated than now because of, but that was what it was designed to be. Yeah. So it's a, you use cash for payments, small payments, quick payments, private payments, illegal payments. These are all reasons why people use cash. And Bitcoin was simply designed to be cash for the internet. I think it's also an interesting point that looking forward at the euro and the potential problems there, my personal view is that the, the euro is going to break up. And when it does, these types of tokens are going to come into play because Bitcoin is not only a well, token currency, whatever you want to call it, but it's also a payment system. That's That's how it's differentiated between other payments other the dollars the dollar and the pounds the pound but it's not a payment system but bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are an actual payment system built in yeah and then you get into the gold argument there bitcoin's digital gold you know store of value 
in times of economic crisis, blah, blah, blah. And But it's it's found a lot of use in Venezuela, in Argentina over the last couple of years. And there's a, another cryptocurrency called Dash that's made big moves in Venezuela to try and bring them a, an independent payment system so that they, they're not you know, beholden to the collapsing peso. By the way, if you want to know the big, a big money-making opportunity in the uh, years ahead, um, Venezuelan pesos. And I'll tell you what the opportunity is. When, um, like at the peak, like we, you've got to kind of work out at what point do they give up printing pesos. But when the, I'm going to get the number wrong here. I beg your pardon. But don't worry, let's we, just we, say can, the, we can edit it out. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but at the, the, I think the highest denominated note that got printed in Zimbabwe was $100 trillion. The $100 trillion notes. And they printed however many of them they printed. And then the currency collapsed and it was worthless paper and people were burning it. And they're now but, circulating freely in the city of London with people like me. Well, the exactly. And the the bizarre irony was that a lot of, um, you know, clever people from America went and bought bales of these hundred trillion dollar notes. Oh, wow. And and what happened was is after the currency had collapsed, they became collector's items. And there was a point in 2016, I wrote an article about it in The Guardian, actually, where it was actually, you could argue that Zimbabwe $100 trillion notes were certainly the best performing currency in the world. Um, <laughs> but they also were the best performing asset class in the world. They beat every other asset class. Amazing. Because they were going, my, um, they were trading. Um, now they're worth over $100 each. Oh, my God. For one note. And so in a bizarre kind of wing, because they became collector's items, they, they, they just, but they were going up at like, you know, trading on eBay. It was like $5, $10, $20, $30. And um, I actually had to buy a load of, um, I wanted to buy a load of trillion dollar notes for my game show that I did in Edinburgh last year as prizes for the losers. I gave them hundred trillion dollar notes, but they were so expensive. I couldn't <laughs> give them out as prizes. I ended up having to devalue and go all the way down to $50 billion notes because they were the only ones I could, could afford. And so, uh, yeah. And they were, even they were like a dollar each. Wow. So it's amazing. So, you know, when, I don't know at what point they give up printing, but at some point the highest denomination Venezuelan, um, pace and note, peso notes will become collector's items. This would tend to suggest that the Austrians were right when they said that value is entirely subjective. Yeah, completely. It completely. I mean, as you say, with money, there's been so many different forms. You mentioned mud, which I hadn't heard of, but I have heard of tally sticks, you know, wooden sticks that were used, and leaves, and uh, and you know, various shells, various yeah. other things. And and so, like like you say, intrinsic value, none, but actual the values attached to it by the individual. Yeah. I had a, I heard quite a good one about the, um, the Indians in, in America used to wear these long shell necklaces around their necks and they would have tattooed on their forearms, almost like a ruler, a measure. You know, if you imagine a ruler has, is a marking at every inch uh, uh, along the 12 inches that is a ruler. So you'd have a similar thing tattooed on your arm, a measure. And then when it came to make a payment, they were able to take the necklace and cut off the right measure according to the tattoo on their arm. That's brilliant. So, Dominic, where, where do you actually get your, your inspiration for your, your, your comedy? And who do you, do you like test it out on various set people when you know it's working on them? It's definitely working. 
there are new material nights uh, all over. So you you if you've got an idea for a new routine, you you go and try it out. And you, the audience is the best editor. You know, the audience tells you straight away whether it's funny or not. But when I do the songs, like that Brexit song, I only did once live. And it just felt quite good. And I did it in a very forgiving comedy club called Comedy Unleashed, where they tend to be pretty tolerant of of, of non-left-wing views. And so that one I only did once. And But I knew that, you know, with March 29th coming and all the rest of it, we just had to get the video made as quickly as possible. So I skipped all the normal processes that you you might go through with a, with a regular routine. Um, there was another one I made called Debt Bomb a few years ago that was quite popular. And um, again, that one, I just, it just sort of, you just sort of wrote itself almost. And um, so, but some routines you'll try and try again, you know, some routines I'm still tweaking them, you know, a year after I've been doing them, you know, you never stop jokes are sort of living things and they never stop evolving. And, you know, some jokes just get tired over time and others don't and others keep, changing and routines change so new material nights edinburgh's can be quite a good way place to try out new material and develop it if you do the free fringe where does the inspiration come from i guess everything you consume you know whether it's tv programs you watch or conversations you have or experiences you have everything that goes in goes in and gets processed and then you know the really good comedians process it well and 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 recycle it as jokes or stories we're recording this on the 17th of March. Um, what do you think is going to happen on the 29th of March, Dominic? I, you know, in all probability, it's going to get kicked down the road. But I, do, I still think there's an outside chance. I think Theresa May's deal is going to get voted through, honestly. I think they're going to choke, and I think it's a mistake. Yeah. But but the there's still an outside chance that, that no deal... Like, it's such a up that no deal happens by default somehow the eu says no to extending article 50 it's, it's clearly going down to the wire whatever happens but yeah. uh, i i think i think i probably agree that you know that people are going to fall into line because because it's just you know it's just peer group pressure it's just you know group think and all the rest but uh i would lo- i would love it if we left on wto terms but i just think that's not that's not the most realistic outcome now Matthew Lynn has written a really good article in The Telegraph last week, I don't know what day, Wednesday maybe, about the um, tax implications of uh, going straight to WTO terms. And at the moment, 100% of goods that come from the EU come tariff-free. But that's actually an illusion because the tariffs are effectively paid by our membership fee. Mm. Um, But in, in the event of no deal, 82% 82% of goods from the EU will still be tariff-free without our having to pay a membership. But 92% of goods from out, imported from outside the EU will be tariff-free. 92% of goods, as opposed to 56% now. And the tariffs will be maintained on things like cars and agricultural goods where there's some protection for farmers. But one of the unintended consequences of WTO rules, if you're a libertarian, is it suddenly just propels you into a much lower tax environment than you would otherwise be in. And that will make life so much cheaper for a lot of people. And the reason for this is that under WTO rules, you can't discriminate between countries. So effectively, tariffs end up will have to go um, to zero. And it's 87% of imports will be free of any kind of tariff. And I just think almost that alone is a reason to go straight to WTO. And 
they, they've already drafted up all what the tariff laws will be. And apparently we haven't had to um, set any independent tariffs since 1973. So we're sort of out of practice. But often these things are good because, you know, the problem with government legislation generally is that it get, keeps getting added to without anything being taken away. But this going straight to WTO would just mean huge swathes of stuff would just be taken away. And it'll just be such a purging of our tariff system. And I just think, you know, if you look at the, the countries in the past, which have been the most successful countries, you know, they've always, you know, they've been the richest, the most inventive, the most innovative, the most prosperous. They've always been low tax jurisdictions. There's no example of a high tax jurisdiction, you know, that's been an incredibly successful nation early on in its evolution. And so I, it's just such an opportunity. It'd be so funny if we just fall into this by accident. It'd be a very British way of making it happen. But, very, very, very silly question. What, what happens to that tax revenue? Where does that go at the moment? I guess it goes to the EU. Yeah, that's my presumption. But, um, but um, I don't know. Starve the beast would seem to be the, the operative uh, approach. Just, 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 just get, take yeah, the money it, away from them. It, it will be a huge exercise in starving the monster. Absolutely right. Anyway, but I give it, what, 25% chance of happening? It's so fascinating. I don't know what I'm going to do when Brexit is over, because there's just going to be... Assuming Brexit ever will be over. Well, I I make a lot of assumptions there. I'm certainly not assuming it's going to be over on the 29th of March, because it won't be. But, I mean, there's just going to be this gaping hole in my life when it is over, because... I, I just can't stop following it. It's it's I, I made a joke the other day that I've I've let my Netflix subscription go because I don't need to watch it anymore because I've got Brexit. Um <laughs> Brexit. One, one of my one of my favorites is we had an economist, John Hearn, on last year, and he said his 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 perennial nightmare is it's ten years in the future. We're still negotiating Cleveland, and everyone else already left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's possible. I mean there's so many things that have been done wrong, but for me, it goes all the way back to Gove stabbing Boris in the back because it needed to be led by a lever. It needed to be led by somebody who believes in it and somebody who understands it. And I, I certainly don't think Theresa May believes in it. I, I just, there's something missing with her. She's got absolutely no philosophy about anything. And so, you know, she's, as we all know, there's no need points spelling it all out, all the mistakes she's made, but it goes all the way back to, um, you know, the, the lack of leadership, the failure of leadership with Go stabbing Boris in the back. And but what's been able to happen since then is is that dissident voices have been able to speak up. The Remain side of it was obviously gutted that it lost. But if it had if there'd been a leader coming and saying, right, we're leaving, the EU are going to give us a rubbish deal, but we'll try and get a good deal. But we have to accept the fact that they're not likely to give us a good deal because they don't want to set a precedent for other countries to leave. We'll do this. But if we don't, if they don't give us a good deal, we'll just go on our own on WTO terms. And these are the preparations we'll make for WTO terms. If it had been led, absolutely. Because in the first few months after the referendum, everyone, even people like Chukurumana were saying, we have to accept the result. But because it's been led so badly, there's this dissidence has been able to rise up and people have been able to go, well, actually, we should have a revote or actually this is and this is the thing. And so all this and, and the dissidence has now spread to the entire House of Commons, which has now reached the point. Now, it would have if, if we'd got on with it and led it properly after the result, the House of Commons, I'm fairly sure, would have accepted it. But now we've reached the point where the House of Commons is entirely out of touch with the rest of the country. The, the country voted 52-48. The House of Commons is is 70% remain. And it still is. And now it's just 
it, it doesn't want no deal. It doesn't want Theresa May's deal. Um, it doesn't want a second vote. All it is is it doesn't want anything, and there's no leadership there. So it's just chaos. But the beauty of it, from me, Mr. Anarchist, is it shows how totally redundant a the House of Commons is as, as a system of governing, but b how how you know it's it's revealed the incompetence of our political class and our political systems. And so that is a beautiful thing, which is only going to have bigger repercussions. Well, if anyone feels similarly frustrated by this process, I have started a petition, which will no doubt get rejected instantly, um, to have the death penalty reintroduced for high treason in the UK. <laughs> well, I, I think that might be a little bit extreme, Tim, but you, I, I, I think you're making a good point. <laughs> but yeah, it might be you might be going a little bit too far to garner widespread support. <laughs> well, I, I say in this climate, anything is possible. Well, yeah, fair enough. Um, but so in answer to your question next week, you know, do we leave in, in, in 12 days time? At the beginning of the year, when I did my money week predictions, my, I, I couldn't decide whether it was no deal or Article 50 gets extended. I, it just looks more and like more likely that Article 50 gets extended. But oh, my goodness me, come the next general election. All those MPs who voted for this in leave constituencies are going to get annihilated. And the Conservative Party, as I look at it, has got the mother of all opportunities at the moment where it could it could get a lever in charge, whether it's Boris or Rees Mogg or Raab, whoever it is, get a lever in charge, stand for an independent, low tax uh, nation and a, I think we'll have an enormous economic boom, but B, that's where the majority of the politics of the British people lies. And it's been unrepresented. It's a view that's been unrepresented for decades because the Conservative Party have been so obsessed with occupying the middle, they've turned themselves into another sort of, you know, third way Labour Party. But they have an opportunity to do that and dominate British politics for, you know, the next two or three general elections. Or they go down this remain route that they're going down at the moment or this fudged Brexit route. And what that will do is all those disenfranchised people that it will create will just lurch to the right and they'll vote for Farage's Brexit party or whatever it is, who will take 20% of the vote. Um, you know, some people will stay loyal to the Conservatives. Some people will, will go to Farage's Brexit party and we'll be in a situation where, you know, we've got Corbett, we'll have Corbyn's Socialists who have 20 to 25 percent of the vote. Farage's uh, Brexit party has 20 to 25 percent of the vote. There's a sort of rudderless conservative party that will have about 20, 25 percent of the vote. And then the Lib Dems and the Tigs between them will have 20 or 25 percent of the vote. And the whole thing will just be will just be it will be totally broken. Now, the, the, as I say, the Conservatives have got the opportunity to stop that happening and dominate British politics for the next however many years. But they just seem to be intent on on not doing that. And I, I don't know if they're out of touch or it's just because there's too many neo-Blair centrists in there or neo-Cameronites or whatever it is. But it's there on the table. Just take it. But they just don't want to take it. Well, my, my question throughout all of this has really been, I mean, it would be fair to say that I don't think we've yet had a Ramona on the, the podcast in the last year. But my, my question would be, what is it, do you think, about the EU project that has has proven so apparently attractive to so many people? Because the one thing I never heard during the debate over Brexit was, 
why stay in? It was only ever it'll be too dangerous, too 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 damaging to leave. But it was never a, a positive argument advocated. It was only ever expressed in negative terms. What do yeah. you think about the project that that you think the people who are you know who have clearly lost their mind over? What is it that's appealing to them? Well, there's a big sort of socialist Owen Jones, Yanni Farafakis argument, which is stay in and reform, you know, reform from within. But that's just impossible. Well, Cameron um, tried that and then go and got his ass handed. Exactly. I, I agree. Uh, but that's that's one argument is stay in and reform from within. But that's just, you know, political reform. You just don't. It's just takes f- forever. Um, you're better off just walking away. But anyway, that's a, that's a different. But what is it? I think it's it's that sort of. There's a, we're in a huge ideological war and political ideology has replaced religion. And there is a belief in the sort of two, there's a sort of independent democratic thing. I mean, I, I, um, I had, I got somebody tweeted me the other day. I think I said something like politics is, is not fit for purpose or the house of commons is not fit for purpose. And somebody replied, the electorate is not fit for purpose. Mm. And you kind of think, do you really think that the electorate is not fit for purpose? And so you've got this, what we've had in politics for however many years since, you know, probably since the 90s, is that whoever best occupies the middle wins the election. That's the way the first past the post system works. So Tony Blair won the middle and he betrayed the left of the Labour Party who can't stand him, but he he stayed in power for however many years. And then Cameron came along and he was the Conservative Party's answer to Tony Blair. But it meant that the left of the Labour Party and the right of the Conservative Party just got overlooked and ignored. The left were considered loony left and the right of the Conservative Party as swivel-eyed loons. You know, the, the same word loon appears in both. We're going into a time where politics has changed again. We're in a bull market. For you know, I wrote a sketch in 2001 on Radio 4 on Loose Ends. I used to do these political broadcasts every week. And the I wrote a sketch in 2001 after the Blair election victory, and it was the victory speech by the Apathy Party. Because just nobody cared about politics. Nobody voted anymore. It was so obvious that Blair was going to win. And then suddenly, and it's sort of, I think 2008, 2009 was the trigger. We're now in a bull market for politics, which will probably go on 20, 30 years, something like that. It's like the 70s again, where, you know, it was the big arguments between Thatcher and the left. And you knew where everyone stood. But the result of that sort of clarity is it, it you know, they got when people clearly stand for things, it means they're open to attack. So both sides got savaged by the media and it bred this new breed of politics where nobody stood for anything in order to stop themselves from being stav- savaged by the media. And that trend has changed again. And now there is a demand from the people. We're sick of people not standing for anything. Um, there is a demand for people, for, for politicians, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn on the left or Jacob Rees-Mogg on the right. They're both extremely popular because of the fact that their their worldview is clear. They're popular with their supporters, I should say. And so there's this and even Farage, you know, there's this demand for honesty in politics, which Theresa May and various others just don't have because they don't appear to stand for anything. So I think this ideological argument that's going on is is between a sort of unelected, centrist, technocratic, plan everything, EU um, worldview and a worldview where, no, we want people who stand for something, believe in democracy. I mean, there's so many different ideological things, but but you get my main point is there's this idea of people who stand for something. And it's almost like you get it in, in companies as well. You have like 
the entrepreneur who starts the company in the first place and builds it up and takes the risks and does all those things. And then you see it with the tech companies now. Then people sort of creep in and this sort of managerial class creep in and end up running the company. Um, and, you know, these are the guys like, you know, Stuart Rose and these highly paid CEOs that you find who never actually started a company themselves. What they're do, good at doing, it's like the guys who became prefects at school. They're just very good at playing the system rather than being the real rebels who actually built the school in the first place. And, you know, th- th- these are the two ideology, ideologies that are, are at war. And so the managerial class want the EU, that kind of rule, because that protects their status and that confirms their worldview. And the risk takers and the people who believe in democracy and so on and so forth want that other worldview. I, 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 I'm sort of rambling a bit, but I think you take my point. Well, it reminds me of my, one of my favourite quotes from the, the, the computer game Civilization, uh, which, if you haven't played it, is an excellent, an excellent game and a particularly good way of teaching children about history and, and science and technology. And there's, there's a line, uh, and I'm not sure this is attributed to anybody in particular, but it's the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you, do you accept the argument that, or the suggestion that this heightened political climate of today it can be traced directly back to the global financial crisis 10 years ago and the rise of crony capitalism? Well, um, that seems to have been the trigger. But I think it goes back further than that. My friend Dominic English, who's a comedy writer, he goes, he he blames decades of Clinton and Blair and Bush and and Obama. He blames decades of that for what's happening now. And I think he's got a point. But for sure, the financial crisis, just it, the the way the world works, and the fact that certain classes of people are exempt from the uh, rules that don't apply to other classes of people, and the inequality that the the central bank reaction to the financial crisis caused, you know, all the money printing, QE, and zero interest rates, and all the rest of it. I'm sure, even if people struggled to articulate it. Um, something became very clear then. And so, you know, if I was to trace back the the origins of this bull market in politics, I would say, yeah, it began in 2008. But the, the, the causes of it go back further. Have you ever considered a career in politics, Dominic? I think there's too much dirt on me. There's too many things <laughs> I've said over the years. You, by could, you, could, you can have a shower. I mean, at no, this time. Yeah, but maybe I'm tempted to join this uh, Farage's um, new... Uh, you know, leave means leave party, whatever he's going to call it, the Brexit party. There will be some opportunities there. So, I'm not very good at arguing. Oh, like, really? You know, but you deal with hecklers uh, all uh, the time, uh, right? Au contraire, au contraire Blackadder. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, like I've only been on those tele- telepundit shows a couple of times, but I went on this um, one with Adam Bolton last year and called Sky Reviews the Papers or something with this woman called Zoe Williams. And like, she started the conversation started saying Brexit was far right. It was a far right movement. And I was like, Tory Brexit. Yeah. And then, and so I was going, you can't just smear it as far right. Uh, It wasn't far right. And we got into this discussion and and then she was saying everyone was lied to. And I said, no, it wasn't. And I went on this thing of no, David Cameron made it clear if we voted for Brexit, it meant leaving the single market. It meant leaving the ECJ. It meant leaving the the customs union. And And I was on this, one train of thought in one thing. And Adam Bolton just suddenly went to me, well, is the common market a good thing? And it was sort of a left field question. And it was 
from my train of thought. And it took me a second to sort of gather my thoughts. And I, I remember I sat back in my chair and thought about it. And I was like, because I'd been on one tack, he, he just literally, he was like pushing you over, yeah. um, pushing you off your balance. And, um, and I was, I sort of waffled for about, you know, 20 seconds or something, and then got my thoughts back on straight and was reasonably coherent. Now, what somebody did on Twitter is they just took that one segment of, and all you saw was Adam Bolton going, is the common market a good thing? And, and me sort of being slightly thrown off my balance. And it looked to anyone who saw that clip that all he'd asked me is, is the common market a good thing, which is a fairly straightforward question. And I was, and I was kind of going, hang on a minute, we're not here to discuss whether the common market is a good thing or not. We're here to, to review the paper so that I can promote my bloody Edinburgh show. And, and <laughs> you know, that was what the purpose of me being on that program. And, 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 and I was like, so I was, but anyway, this clip that was on Twitter, like just made me look so bad. If you watch the whole interview, it's a perfectly good, you know, six out of 10 interview. But that one moment he picked was made me look like three out of 10. And, and not even that, like four out of 10. And then Graham Linehan or someone like retweeted it. And it went totally viral on Twitter. Yeah. And for a day, like, uh, you know, my life was miserable because everyone's going, look at this fucking idiot. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is why leavers are idiots and blah, blah, blah. And I remember well, thinking that happens to politicians yeah. all the time. Yeah. Well, I, where I they think, get I, quoted I, out of context, you know, and you've got to have such thick skin, sure. A, to be able to handle the emotion of that, but B, you've got to be so on your toes when you're on discussion programs so that you avoid that happening. And it's no wonder they just become these bland automatons because they're, they're, they don't want that to happen to them. But I, think that, I don't think I could ever handle that. Sorry to interrupt. I think the, the issue for me, there's, there's two things from that little anecdote. One is that the problem with conventional media is that, you know, if you argue with idiots, you end up looking like an idiot. So that's the, the first thing. And the second thing is that the, the way I would describe the whole post-referendum world is that the, refer, the Brexit referendum was like lifting up a gigantic rock. And nobody in the country can quite believe just the kind of pond life that's scuttling around underneath <laughs> it. And that includes huge tranches of the media. Isn't a lot of this, though, um, sort of experience and le learning how to deal with a question that may come from left field? I mean, what I've learned about when I first started doing sort of media and Bloomberg television, I had to look at how politicians answer questions. And I realised that they never... They don't. They, they don't, don't, exactly. They never answer the question that you ask them. They always, always answer the question that they want to answer. And I thought... Yeah. I, well, that, if to, I ever... to be fair, that's the way that's the way you answer essays when you're a student, which is why PPE is such a dangerous, a dangerous subject for graduates to to then bounce off into politics. It's almost as bad as I think this is one reason why Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nigel Farage are both so popular, because they most of the time do answer the question and they stay on their tack. I remember going to a uh, in the lead up to the referendum vote, going to um, a Guardian debate at the Palladium. And this is before referendum mania had taken over. And there was Farage, Nick Clegg, Leadsom, who was standing in for Nigel Lawson, and uh, Alan Johnson of the Labour Party. So four fairly political heavyweights. And this was a Guardian event. And I sat there and the 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 woman would go, the... the um, uh, what do you call it? The, the the MC would give them like 30 seconds to answer a question or something. And like Alan Johnson and Nick Clegg just waffled and waffled. They always went over their time. And, um, and, but uh, Farage every single time 
29, 29 and a half seconds on the money. Wow. And he was just brilliant. And he was articulate. And he answered the question. And he said something that meant something. And that's why he gets on the telly so often, because he's so good at it. There are, and, there are, there are and, two people. Sorry, sorry, Dominic. There are two people um, that I, I think can hold an audience in the palm of their hand. Farage is one, because I've heard him speak, and he is legendary. And the other would be Daniel Hannan, who I've got a, yeah. a, a lot of time for as a speaker. And a great. politician. But the Tories, I mean, this is a ridiculous thing. The Tories, block, he could have been a Tory MP, and the Tories blocked him, because they're scared of him. Like going back to what we were talking about, how t the Tories could own politics for the next two or three generations. Surely you'd be begging to have an intellect as as forceful as that who stands for something like free markets in your party. Surely you'd be like queuing up to give him a a, a media platform and all the rest of it. And they blocked him. Incredible. It's insane. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a huge vacuum. It's got to be filled soon because it's just it's just getting ridiculous. Like, I mean, how is he just an MEP, a guy who's as brilliant as he is? It's insane. So you, you voiced over a very interesting uh, documentary, Dominic, um, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. I thought that was great. I didn't only, I didn't only voice over it. I wrote it. Did you write it? Oh, my God. Yeah, I co-wrote it. But that, that I'm afraid that film has left a very nasty taste in my mouth because the, uh, the guy who directed it, um, like, he put what I consider to be very misleading titles on it. And, and so everyone thought that he wrote it. And I, oh. and he, and they, I wasn't probably credited with that. And then he, and then nobody who worked on that film ever got paid. Well, a lot of us didn't. And so, um, you know, I'm afraid, you know, that was a film calling for economic reform, but, but at its heart was, was, <laughs> it left a very bad taste in my mouth. Very bad. Yeah. Bit. I'm not surprised. Yeah. What a shame. Yeah, yeah. That's a real shame. Well, I'll be looking out for the production company and make sure they're blacklisted. I mean, I, <laughs> it's I, the renegade economist. Well, I, I do a little bit it's of film. Renegade. I, I write and direct short films myself and moving in, into a feature film at some point. So I've, I'm a bit like yourself. I've got my foot in the financial markets and also in the media at the same time. And it's, it is fascinating. And, and I had a meeting with, with uh, this uh, fairly high profile guy in, in, in the media. And he, he was saying that um, people in finance are far more credible than than anybody in the media industry they 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 would screw you over as soon as look at you but actually people in in the city tend to be far more of their word and, and more trustworthy and having having known quite a oh, few man, people the media is full of scoundrels yeah. oh my god it's got some of the most people who ever drew breath in it <laughs> but you know when you think about the financial markets and and the image people have of of people in the city that's quite a statement isn't it oh my god yeah I've never thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. All these people are going bankers, bankers, evil, evil. Take a look at the f media. Yeah. Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> well, I said we'd need the bleeper. Oh my God. It's like Hollywood is like distilled. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, you've you've has there been a, a project? I dare not ask now, but has there been a project that it, you know? Because of course, you you've been in films like big films, and you've voiced over many projects. Is there any? Has there been anything that's been a good project for you? Oh, loads! Oh, I've been, I've, I oh, mean, good. I've worked all my life, and there's been hundreds of fantastic projects. Oh, and, fantastic! And you know, I've worked on some of the most exciting things ever. And um, you know, there's loads of fantastic people in the media, but. I mean, the stories of scoundrel 
theatre producers and film producers. Oh, I mean, yeah. they're, they're the stuff of legends, some of the scams that have been run. You know, that's what the producers is all about. Yeah. I so mean, People have no idea, don't they? They really have no idea that, of that world. It's a very dark world. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember when people were saying about, for example, the, the cast of Friends and how much they were making per episode. And of course, it was a huge amount of money. But what they don't see is the people behind the scenes who are making an absolute killing. And and they only it's like the tip of the iceberg of the whole industry, really. Yeah, whoever I, I mean, I I I'm not, I don't doubt that the people the actors in Friends earned a fortune, but somewhere along the line, there's a production company or a producer or someone who earned way more from it. Yes, exactly. well, it, it generates if it, if something generates literally hundreds of millions of dollars, it's not not unreasonable to to take a small part of that if you happen to be behind the the success of the venture. Completely. <laughs> But it's generally it's genuinely shocking to hear that on such a big production such as that, you know, something you can go onto Amazon Prime and watch, to hear that that's that's happened. You know, I'm I'm actually quite quite even though I've kind of primed for something like that, I would never have expected that to have happened in in that sort of production. So you know, I'm genuinely quite shocked about that. But um, yeah, such is the nature of that business. To change yeah. tack, to change tack just yeah. a little bit, we had a, a listener who was asking about. Um, I think it was via Twitter asking about sort of ways to protect capital. Now, I, I would maintain that gold, um, gold and, and and precious metal related things can play a part in that. Is there anything you'd add to a list of, let's say, crash attempting to crash proof a portfolio? <sighs> I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure where I stand on the the whole the economy's going to crash narrative. I was quite keen on it at one stage. I, I really believed it was going to happen. But I mean, in general terms at the moment, I'd probably avoid government bonds um, unless it's, I just think as a sector, I think it's just run out of steam. And, you know, that's the next big crisis that's waiting to happen is a crisis in the government debt market. So, I mean, there are some government bonds that will do better than others, you know, Singapore or somewhere. But um, the... I mean, you, I guess you've got to own some gold in this world, although this is something I write about a lot in my book. And, uh, you know, I, I know I, a lot of gold bugs follow me and I don't mean to. I, I own a lot of gold. I'm very much long gold. But the we've moved into a world where the digital economy is now the intangible digital economy is way bigger than the uh, physical economy. And. You know, this the, the point at which one grew bigger than the other was around in the mid 90s when one grew bigger than the other. But a lot of it's to do with simple scale. And we see it in things like, you know, Walmart has greater revenues than Amazon, but Amazon has a much bigger market cap. Well, the fact that you can have businesses like Uber that don't actually own any cars. Exactly. And uh, hotels and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every, everything, everything becomes virtual. And that, in the defense, I mean, I'm, I'm a value investor, so we, we're, we're sort of, wary of stepping into sort of what we would consider perhaps dangerously priced tech stuff. But in their defense, the one thing that I don't think anyone could argue with is where the internet has changed everything is it's enabled startups to go global with with greater yeah. speed than ever before in history. It's amazing. And it's simply because of digital technology. And the word is scalability. And the, if you so if let's just say like, Okay, so let's take my video, my my um, seventeen million f offs video. Um, 
that's as we write it's had between 150 and 200,000 views on youtube and it's had um another 150,000 on facebook so it's had 350,000 views now I, I invented that product 2 weeks ago amazing and i put it up there and it's already had 350,000 inverted commas customers if you invent an app you only need to upload it once and you can sell it can be downloaded a million or a billion times Whereas let's just say I had invented a brilliant, I'm mouse looking at my trap. desk. Well, sorry? That's a better mousetrap. I was going to say a pen. But yeah, you know, if I wanted to sell 350,000 units of that pen or that mousetrap, I've got to build them. I've got to find factories who can build them, who can scale up, who can distribute them around the world. It's the, the limitations of the physical world compared to the digital world mean it just doesn't have this scalability. And so... You know, that's that's where what I think a lot of investors miss about the real world. And by the way, the scalability of Bitcoin compared to the scalability of physical currencies um, of, 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 of government currencies is a is an argument that very you very rarely hear. But the Internet needs a borderless system of money. And all you need to, to be able to accept Bitcoin in, in exchange for your goods or services is Internet connection. And by 2021, they reckon, Sony Ericsson reckons that 6 billion people in a global population of 7 billion will have a smartphone. So even though between 2 and 3 billion people are still unbanked, they can't get access to the financial system as in its current form. It won't matter. It won't matter because they can use cryptocurrencies. And so it'll be a bit like, do you remember when um, China suddenly just went wireless and, and, you know, the rest of the world was still laying cables and China just bypassed the laying of the cables and just went wireless. And so Internet adoption, it, it'll be a bit like that. It'll just suddenly one will overtake the other. So we were, I was talking about, um, you, you know, good investments and so on. But there's people forget the word scalability. And so I just think investment in, in, in tech, if you can find the right opportunities and the right companies and so on, um, there's a lot of opportunities there. Things like Facebook, I'm very worried about, particularly now there's been this this latest um, terrorist uh, atrocity in in New Zealand. Everyone's, uh, you know, attacking Google and attacking Facebook for sharing the content. And the, the problem is if Google and Facebook have to have to monitor every single post or um, every single bit of content that gets uploaded to those sites, to those platforms, they just can't. It's not possible to do that. The manpower isn't there. That's a major threat to their business models. And if they do do that, a lot of people who upload, you know, what they might deem unacceptable content, but isn't necessarily content that's exciting, exciting people to go and, you know, shoot 49 innocent people will just start using what they call DAOs, which is decentralized autonomous organizations. And these are basically Google and Facebook, but with nobody in charge. Mm. They're run, they're distributed um, on blockchains, a bit like Bitcoin is. And so they're run by various different computers around the world. And this is the, what's coming. And DAOs will just replace uh, traditional uh, social media. And the social implications of that are incredible. That's, yeah. I love that's, I love the way you say traditional social media. We've yeah. only had it for about five years. Well, precisely, precisely. That's why it's one of the risks of investing in tech is it's just so fast moving. It, this was the point I originally set off on that I was trying to make. So we've got this thing where the value of digital eclipses 
the the value of the real world. And we see it in like, you know, generation rent. They don't want to buy the Rolls Royce. They just want to use it for the weekend. They don't value stuff anymore. We're seeing the rise of digital nomads. You know, people, stuff is a burden, not an asset. And digital, so this is all part of the mentality that's that's going with this. Um, and gold is like the ultimate analog asset. It's the ultimate physical asset. It's like the least digital thing there is. And I think one problem gold has going forward is, is just that, that, that simple thing of it's, it's so physical that it's, it, do you see what I mean? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, gold is the ultimate analog asset. I think Tim, you're going to be quoting that, aren't you? Yeah, I know. I've already written it down. I've already written it down. <laughs> Excellent stuff. So, Dom, Dom, Dominic, you've you've got kids, haven't you? Four, what? and they've all got gold. <laughs> <laughs> what um, what advice would you give um, to let's say the next generation in terms of you know I'm conscious that over the last decade I've seen multiple surveys saying everyone's going to get replaced by machines and robots and bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. What advice would you give for someone? Who's basically trying? Who, who might crave something very, very old-fashioned and traditional, known as job security? Well, uh, job security is, is is that's a different age. It's for an industrial age. Uh, the by even by twenty thirty, fifty percent of the global workforce will be freelance, and that's Ernst and, Ernst and Young's projection, not mine. You know, job security, the traditional employer-employee relationship, different era, mate. So forget about that. The two. Okay, so, uh, so let, let's replace it with the phrase, you know, uh, good employability or good prospects. Yeah, the two uh, lessons I will I would try and impose on my kids is firstly the power of compound investing, and so even tiny amounts invested, uh, you know, when you're 15, 16, the the way that compound investing works over many years, and particularly as they're going to be living longer. So compounding is one. And the second thing is, I think the most important skill you can have, and it's going to be as important as being able to read was, if it isn't already, as being literate was in the 1500s. And that is be able to write code. Learn to code, yeah. Wherever you go, if you can write code, even if it's just halfway decent stuff, if you can write and read code, it's the equivalent of being literate in the 1500s. You will always be able to work. And yeah, you might be replaced by a robot and the robot might be writing the code, but you'll be writing the code that programs the robot. You know, even kids 25, just by virtue of being able to write code, are earning so much more money than kids who can't. And so if you learn, if you're able to write code and then, you know, you don't necessarily need to be a coder, but if you're able to write code, you start off, you start earning more money and then you start you set up your own business. But just it's it's I, I keep repeating it. It's like being able to read. Uh, imagine not being able to read, and like, but that was you know seven eighths of the world population in in fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred, even seventeen hundred, and the people who could read just had such a huge advantage. Even not just by able by virtue of the fact that they were um, they were more employable. But the skill of being able to read meant they were able to do more things. You know, they were able to send messages uh, and send letters and communicate with people a long way away. And and it just gave them an, that extra knowledge, gave them an advantage over everyone else. And, and code 
um, being able to code is the literacy of today. Just a quick mention dispatches to a guy called Michael Batnick in the States, who's a financial analyst and blogger. Uh, you mentioned the power of compound investing. Here's a stat that people may find interesting. The Dow, Dow Jones Industrial Average, has compounded at less than three basis points a day since 1970. Since then, it's up by more than 3,000%. There you go. As he says, compounding really is magic. Yeah. I mean, you look at it, it is, and you look at the S&P, where the S&P was in the 70s compared to what it is today, um, and you look at something like gold, and even though gold's done fine, you know, where the S&P is, is just, it's so much better. And it's because of growth and compounding and all those factors. So, Dominic, how far ahead do you plan with your projects? What what have you got in the pipeline? Well, I've got my book, which I'm editing the final draft of uh, as we speak, and that'll come out in the autumn. I'm very excited about this book. I, Could you been... give remind, remind us of the title again, please? Daylight Robbery. Daylight Robbery. The, the, uh, I can't remember the next bit. <laughs> you know the next <laughs> bit. I can't remember it. Something about tax. How tax um, shaped our past and will change our future. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that book will do well. Um, I mean, I've got there's some belting stories in there about in, about the and it's just full of interesting stuff. This, this tax is so interesting. Um, and I know that that sounds like an oxymoron, but it 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 really is. And so that's coming out. I'm going to do a show in Edinburgh this this um, August called Libertarian. It was going to be called Libertarian Protest Songs, but we've actually changed it to Libertarian Love Songs, in which my Brexit song will be included. So my big two projects between now and then are are Libertarian Songs and the book. And the other thing, I my New Year's resolution this year, but God knows how I'm going to keep it, was to make a zombie film uh, <laughs> where the virus is government. And only, and only people... <laughs> Who, the only people who escape are people who escape government. <laughs> Lib- libertarian zombie movie. Fantastic. That that sounds absolutely brilliant. So you so you could actually have an album then. Don't... There will be an album. Um, I've got. I'm just writing the national anthem of Libertaria at the moment, which I'm singing to the music of the Russian national anthem because there's no intellectual property rights in Libertaria, man. And um, and so we. <laughs> What we've done is we're taking the best bits of all the countries in the world. And since Russia has the best national anthem, we're nicking the music and changing the words. But it sounds really funny when you sing things like, I don't know if you know the national, the Russian national anthem, but it kind of goes. And then the chorus is taxation is theft. And so, and it sounds really funny if you sing like, Things like that, but with a really operatic voice. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged with that. Have you, have you come across uh, in person Jeff Norcott? Uh, uh, no, Jeff very well. Yeah, he's a good yeah. buddy. Because I was going to say the, the what, what, what I'm enjoying, what I'm relishing about the, the current environment is the, the slow but I think slow but sure um, swinging back of the pendulum from you know comedy being controlled by unfunny left wing comedians. Well, I mean, Jeff's a fantastic comic. He's a much better joke writer than I am. In fact, he's a better comic than I am, although I'm a better compare than him, although he might disagree with that. But anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, fight, fight. But the, uh, I mean, Jeff's, I, I love Jeff, but it's funny. I saw him on Tuesday, actually, and I was going, we were talking about this very subject, and he was going, I'm normal. What I think is normal. You know, my sort of working class conservative worldview that is the worldview of the majority of the british population 
And uh, and it was quite funny, you know, because people are sort of thinking, you know, he's standing up for the right and so on. But he, as he quite lit- um, meaningly said, um, I'm normal. What he's what he sees is is normal. It's very funny. He said um, he did a joke. I shouldn't really repeat his jokes. It made me laugh. But he's, he said the, the reason Brexit isn't working for the middle classes, the reason a lot of the middle class people don't like Brexit is because it hasn't been worded properly. And if they said that Brexit, uh, in doing Brexit, we are transitioning, um, it would be much more popular. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. So I think I think we should go to media picks. What do you think, Tim? Let's go. Let's go for it. So um, you know the drill. Uh, we either choose something that we absolutely love or absolutely hate uh, to obviously avoid if if you didn't particularly like it or, or, or feel passionately lukewarm about yes indeed tim do you want to go do you want to go first I'll, I'll start i haven't got much to say so i'm just gonna give one one this week which is i, I caught um deadpool 2 last night i have not laughed as much <laughs> in ages really? i'm not partic- i'm not particularly into uh, superhero stuff i think most of it's just juvenile and a waste of time and a sort of bad potage of sort of cgi Deadpool 2 is just hilarious. Oh, wow. It's 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 one of those categories of films you can't see. Well, I suspect Dominic may struggle to see it with his kids, depending on how old they are, because it's kind of certificate, either 15 or 18 parental advisory. And I would struggle to watch it with my parents for any number of reasons. But uh, it's very, 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 very funny. Fantastic. Can I just say, I saw that film on a plane last week and Deadpool 1 was great, but Deadpool 2 is even better. I You, you have my vote. Double <laughs> thumbs up. So, Dominic, what, what have you got for us? I didn't know I was supposed to come up with anything, so okay. I'll say Deadpool 2. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, also your up-and-coming book. We'll, we'll have that as a media yeah, pick. Yeah, Daylight Robert. That won't be till October. Will you have yeah. me on in October to of talk co- about it? Of course. Love to. Absolutely love to. love to. But mine is a film called Capernaum, which I think should have won the best foreign Oscar for the best foreign film, even though it was nominated. I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen Roma, but Roma's just... Don't get me don't get me started on that pretentious nonsense. But Capernaum, it's a film about a Lebanese uh, boy who wants to sue his parents, and it's just an amazing film because it comes across as kind of like a fly on the wall documentary. But when you find out that this is acted, it's even more incredible. Um, I can't really describe it. I think you just have to watch it. But it's a very, very moving film. It makes you feel very privileged to have, you know, fresh ru- running water and a place to sleep and, and what have you. And you see how people do live in poverty. But it's... Not after March the 29th, Paul. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. On that bombshell. Ah-ha! <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely. Well, look. Dominic, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Best of luck with the, the Edinburgh Fringe show and your new book and your new song and the album. We'll definitely be following it. If people want to get in touch, Twitter. Uh, it's at Dominic Frisbee. Fantastic. And you've also got DominicFrisbee.com, haven't you? But it's like so out of date. Yeah, and I'm on Facebook as well. I actually delete. I've deleted Twitter from my phone, though, because I think it's bad for the soul. I turned off all the notifications in a fit of peak, and now... And I have to keep going back on going, oh, no, somebody's sort of messaged me or something and kind of done the same. But Tim's the one for Twitter, aren't you, Tim? I, I came late to Twitter, but uh, and uh, I would absolutely acknowledge that you have to use it with extreme care. But that said, every soften it's capable of throwing out such pure genius and also massively serendipitous connections with 
between people that you otherwise wouldn't meet. So I, I'm willing to sort of plow through the the 99% of pure horror just to get the 1% of, of diamonds in the rough. Well, and you're very good on it as well, if I may say. He Thank is, you very much. Yes, yeah. Checks, checks in the post. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, look, Dominic. Thank you once again. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, uh, Dominic. Thanks for listening, and have a fantastic week. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.